Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. But God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, his church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. Facebook is not going to come to me and say, here's the part of my life that is really broken right now, and I would love to hear you listen to me. Facebook is not going to ask me, Kurt, what's your deepest longing and what is your greatest shame? I'm not going to have an embodied confessional experience with social media. Hi, and welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot, and two years ago, this month, the COVID pandemic lockdowns hit the U.S., and with that, a society-wide experiment, whether we wanted it or not, regarding our mental health. And Gabe, frankly, we are still trying to come to terms with the effects on us. This is such an important topic. It's a topic I know on everybody's hearts and minds, especially those who, as we've absorbed through so much trauma in the last couple of years, we recognize that it's been more than many people were expecting. I was looking at the latest data. It looks like 37% of our teenagers have suggested that the pandemic made their mental health worse. That's over a third. There was a group in there that said, look, I kind of held steady. And then one group in the teenage world said, I actually got mentally stronger because of what this has had to teach me. But there's no question. The dynamics are changing. They're changing fast. And so many people are struggling to know, what do I do about this? Like, I understand it's a problem. I understand there's a crisis around mental health, but I don't always know what to do. Now, Rebecca and I talk a lot about this on our Rhythms for Life podcast, and I'd encourage you, you may want to listen to that because we try to interview guests that really help us engage our emotional health, spiritual health, relational health, vocational health. And today, though, you're going to get to hear from the expert. And he's someone we have come to just love, respect, and appreciate. It's Dr. Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist. He's an expert in interpersonal neurobiology and also the author of several books, including his most recent, The Soul of Desire. Well, today I sit down with him and this was a conversation we had specifically focused on 18 to 22 year olds. But this applies to all of us. And the things I was learning from him and gleaning from him absolutely applied to me. But if you have people in your life that are younger, if you have a college student, like I have a son that's in college, or maybe you have teenagers or just children today who are working through these issues, you are going to, for 18 minutes, get to hear amazing insight and content about what does it look like for us to think deeply about this, think deeply about the ways we're living our lives and how we can be the best version of all that God's created us by implementing some of these practices. So let's listen in now to my conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. The next generation has grown up in a world where mental health is just part of the jargon. Mm. Anxiety is a word. You know, as I talk to other psychologists, they, they would ask teenagers whether they're 8 years old, 16 years old, how are you feeling? The dominant emotion that comes up is the word anxiety. Mm -hmm. They're not even used to maybe even explaining how they're feeling outside of those kinds of words. So it's just become right. epidemic yeah. that, that we're living with uh, mental health. I think most of the people listening right now probably 
feel like I'm describing them when I talk about all of these different areas that we all experience. In your practice and in your work, have you seen that uptick over the last decade? And is that something new that we're experiencing because of our environment? Or has it always been there and now we're just talking about it? I think it's both increased in terms of the volume of the number of people who are expressing this. And it's also decreased in its age range. So we have more and more children at younger and younger ages who are experiencing this. And so I think it's not because there is more anxiety virus load in the drinking water. Mm -hmm. I think there are uh, a couple of factors that are part of this. One is that we live in a culture that has told our children, you can do anything that you want to do, which is actually not true. And there's a certain sense in which the more affluent, the more effective we become, the more economically uh, advanced we become, there is a certain sense in which we feel this sense of being able to do more and more and more and more. But the human brain is actually not designed to, to do more and more and more and more. We're actually designed to do a few things really, really well. But we are told that we should be able to do more, and we should do all of that really well. That's not something we're able to do, so that makes me anxious. The other thing that happens is that because we're filling our life with so many things that we have to do, that we can't do, that my brain knows I can't do, it also leaves less opportunity for what I would consider to be embodied connection that takes longer periods of time. We have record-setting experiences of people having fewer and fewer reports of dinner around the table at night, for instance. Yeah. Because we don't have these kinds of embodied connections with one another, sometimes we don't even have the fundamental structural elements that are necessary for human relationships right. to learn how to flourish. Well, and I want to get into that and some of the solutions to what people are experiencing. But first, I want us to understand it better. And your neuroscience background and descriptions have always been helpful to me. When, mm -hmm. when a college student right now is, is feeling anxious, when a panic attack maybe sets in, can you describe what's actually happening in the brain so that we can kind of break this down? I think sometimes not knowing what's going on creates fear, right? Mm -hmm. We show up at the ER, their heart's beating fast, and we think we're having a heart attack, but maybe it's a panic attack. Right. Talk right. about what's happening in our bodies. Right. So one thing that I think that, that is good news for people, and I tell our patients, whether they're you know 18 or 80, that the brain, for the most part, is a pretty reliable organ. And of course, if I'm having panic attacks, I don't think it's very reliable. I don't think it's working well at all. But in fact, if I'm having a panic event or if I'm getting more depressed, my brain is actually trying to send a message to me. When I get anxious, when I have a panic event, in some respects, we would say the part of your brain that is like that of a reptile, your brain stem, and your amygdala, the front part of your brain that is your fear coordinator, it looks into the world registering fear and also trying to give you a sense of what you can do to move away from it, mm -hmm. your brain stem and your amygdala are kind of working together to protect you. And that's the fight, flight, or freeze. That's right. That's right. But protect me from what? Squirrels are being protected from foxes and now even in my neighborhood. But we humans actually do a pretty good job of doing what we need to do to protect ourselves from our physical environment, but what we aren't very well suited for in our current cultural moment is being protected from our own emotional states. Hmm. 
So, for instance, we know that learning how to regulate emotion is one of the primary things that we human beings do behaviorally, relationally. Relationships primarily, if you're just looking at the brain and neuroscience, relationships help me learn how to regulate the entire range of my emotional states, especially my more afflicting ones, the more troubling ones. I need your brain to help me most efficiently regulate that. If I don't have much practice with you, if you're my dad or you're my older brother, if I don't have much practice with you asking me questions about what I feel, helping me to talk about that in a world in which I'm increasingly more anxious because I got all this stuff I got to do, but I'm less connected, so I'm not really able to regulate the anxiety that I have, my brain is going to keep track of this. If I don't have those relationships that are embodied and learning how to slowly teach me how to regulate my emotion by virtue of your empathy and by virtue of your correction, by virtue of your helping me learn, oh, you can be angry and be okay. You can be sad and be okay. You can be afraid. You can be embarrassed. You can be joyful and you can be okay. If I don't have that kind of regulatory process going on that is embedded in me telling you the truth about my story. One of the things we did in our home with our kids growing up was like we would talk about highs and lows every day. What were the things that really gave you joy today? And what were the things that were really hard? Because we wanted them to have the experience of being able to put words yeah. to really difficult relational experiences. Yeah, you're helping practice and, and really train them to identify feelings, right? And to exactly. know how to describe them and to, to not just let them build up. That's right. So we have college students that get to college who are really well-educated about European history or really well-educated about algebra and trigonometry. But if, and in fact, they may even be very aware about emotion because we live in a culture where emotion is everything. I am what I feel. And yet at the same time, we haven't taught our children very well how to actually regulate that. That I can feel these things, but my feelings are not actually the essence of who I am. That is a big statement because I think in our culture today, There is a lot of emphasis on that what you feel is more true than maybe what logic or reason would lead you to. So speak to that and why, especially for Christian college students, why it's so important for them to understand the distinctive between that. Well, you know, the example I give is uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with what used to be the Sears Tower in Chicago. They have these three large compartments that are on the observation deck that they pull them out and you can look on through these plexiglass floors. I've done that. Straight. Very scary. And when we went... My son walked out, my wife walked out, I started to walk out, and I could not get myself to walk out because my brain was telling me this isn't safe. I could see 1,100 feet to the street below, and my brain's like, this is really stupid. I had to put my foot down and like gradually feel what was real. What I felt, my fear, was in that moment an inaccurate representation of reality. Now... It was trustworthy in the sense that I'm paying attention to 1,100 feet drop, and I want to evaluate that. I want to regulate what I feel. My feelings are important because, as we like to say, emotion is the energy in the tank. It is the gasoline in the tank. There's not a thing that we do with our automobile that is not a function of fuel regulation. It's always going on. And so it's crucially important, but it is not the most important. I don't build cars just to have a place to put gasoline. I build cars to go places. And so emotion is always informing my story, 
but emotion is not my story. Yeah. And so that becomes the bigger question. I feel something, but I'm feeling something in the middle of what story right now? If the story is that I'm a person whose life as a follower of Jesus, for instance, if it's Jesus who gives me meaning, yeah. and not just as some kind of theological idea or some abstraction, but like I had the felt sense of the presence of Jesus talking to me as if it's real as I'm talking to you, what does he have to say about me feeling angry? sad, confused, all these kinds of things. What would my father have to say? What would my mother have to say? If I grow up in systems where whatever I was feeling was just allowed to dictate what was real, that's different than my parents asking me, Kurt, so you're angry about this. Yes, I'm angry. And what do we want to do about that? And what is a healthy way to respond to your anger? Not just, well, you're angry and you can do whatever your anger tells you that you want to do. That's an example of what it means for us to learn how to regulate our emotion. Yeah. Many of us have gotten to college and we haven't learned how to do that. Yeah. Consequently, I'm left having to find a way to regulate that by myself. Yeah. And when I run out of my capacity to regulate my emotion well, my brain lets me know that there's a problem. So one of my friends uh, often says, feelings are real. They're not always reliable. I have found that to be a helpful quip in validating that the feeling you're feeling is a real thing. Mm -hmm. But you do have to put it through some other lenses, and I think that's some of what you're describing. I know in your work and your write, your book, The Soul of Shame, you talk so much about the need for embodied connection. Mm -hmm. And in our current culture, embodiment is getting harder and harder. Mm -hmm. um, we're more isolated than ever. Mm -hmm. um, however, technology has come in to play some sort of a role mm -hmm. with social media, making us feel more connected. I'd like for you to help students better understand how is the social media space starting to either fill a need or is it giving us a faux experience that's leaving us more vulnerable? I would say that we're not mutually exclusive things. They're not either or kinds of things. As I like to say, look, every single technology that we've ever developed from the wheel forward does, does at least two things. One is it makes life more convenient. And the second thing is that it potentially draws us further apart. Mm -hmm. And given that I have a penchant for wanting to do life on my own, the way I want to do it, how I want to do it, when I want to do it, I will tend to move in a direction that moves me away from you. So I have to, with intention, come to be with you and you with me. Wow. This is what evil would want to do, like wants to isolate us. Where we read in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. Evil counts on isolating us in order to do its work. And so technology can make things more convenient. I can discover that I have a friend from high school that I haven't known about for a long time. That, that's a great thing. But then the question becomes, what am I going to do with that? So in my isolation, I can get myself to feel in superficial ways connected for a short period of time that I, so I, in the feeling of connection that I'm reading about what, you know, what you're, what you're doing, what my other friends are doing, all this can be effective. But, you know, Facebook is not ever going to ask me the question, Kurt, how are you? Facebook is not going to come to me and say, here's the part of my life that is really broken right now, and I would love to hear you listen to me. Facebook is not going to ask me, Kurt, what's your deepest longing and what is your greatest shame? I'm not going to have an embodied confessional experience with social media. Instead, I'm doing something that my brain knows I'm doing by myself. I might be reading about you, 
but I'm not speaking with you, and my brain can tell the difference. And over enough time, it's kind of like consuming a certain food that tastes really good in the short run, but nutritionally really has nothing to it. And over time, like, I like potato chips. I like, like, I like, that's potato chips. Grandma, that's potato chips. I love those things. But sooner or later, what fills me with some great satisfaction in the short run is going to start to show up in my overall metabolism and in the way my health is because it really doesn't have the substance that good nutritional value brings. And that's what embodiment does for us. Yeah, so you would, you would encourage students in a season where we've been more isolated than ever. We've in some ways been forced to do that. And then social media is filling this gap, but it doesn't hold and it doesn't bring the value, the nutritional value, as well as the mental health value that it needs, that we have to pursue authentic relationship embodied, right? right? right. So that, that means FaceTime right. calls aren't enough. Right. That means we really have to show up and right. sit across from people. Right. And I, I, I want to acknowledge that it, I mean, in the time of COVID, it makes it an exceptionally difficult thing. I, I, want, I just want to acknowledge that, that this is, yeah. this is really hard. I have friends whose kids are in elementary school, high school, college, and it really is hard, Kate. Like, this, this is one of the hardest things I've watched happen for folks because you can't be naive or cavalier about the virus, And at the same time, we recognize that our bodies are yearning for the kind of connection that they want. Like, so I come here to the Q conference and I, I don't want to just like see you from across the room. No, I don't want to do that. And so this is really difficult. And so one of the things I recommend to folks is a, don't presume that things like zoom calls are ineffective at all. They can be very effective as long as we are doing particular kinds of work on them, which includes things like Let's every day, let's talk about some things that I'm grateful for about you mm-hmm. and you for me. What are some things for me that have been really hard today that are different than just it's been hard to be on Zoom all day? Right. What are some things about my inner life that I want to talk with you about and that I can invite you to talk with me about, about my other relationships that I'm still going to have? Mm-hmm. Talking about those real embodied things, even if I'm talking about it on Zoom, is going to be more significant than just talking about my class in chemistry or more than just what are we doing on Friday night again right. in some kind of disembodied way. Yeah. And one of my friends, a guy named Kevin Kelly, he's co-founder of Wired Magazine, big technologist, understands the value of technology. He, he as a personal discipline, wants to always meet with somebody in person. When he can't meet in person, a phone call is the next thing. And he purposes himself not to be distracted by trying to do two things at once. He says, if I'm going to be on the phone with you, that's the only thing I'm doing. I'm not multitasking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in this season, that's something to pay attention to. If we can't be together, it's, it's not as good, but it's something. But let's be fully embodied and in, engage in a, in a deeper emotional way. Right. Let's talk in our final time here together practically for somebody experiencing the real anxiety of a typical day. Maybe five times a day they're feeling anxious feelings. Maybe their heart beats racing, tightness in their chest. Maybe a panic attack or claustrophobic feelings. Mm-hmm. When somebody's experiencing that, as a psychologist, what are some practical tips for them? They might not have the ability to afford to go see a psychologist right now. But you have breathing techniques. There, there's some very practical things people can do to help to lower some of what they're feeling in that panicked moment. And I would love for them to better understand something they could apply. Right. So I think there were probably three or four things that people could do practically, and you can do them today. 
Number one, we have a thing called the six breath per minute exercise. It's very simple, and you can remember it, six breaths per minute. The thing about six breaths is that it's about six breaths less than you usually breathe. Average adult breathing rate is about 12 to 15 breaths per minute. If I'm going to breathe six times a minute, obviously, like I got less air coming in my lungs. How are we going to do this? So you breathe very slowly but deeply in over five seconds and very slowly out over five seconds. That's a 10-second interval. You have six of those in a minute. I can guarantee you, you won't pass out. And it takes some practice. But the other thing that it requires is your full attention. Yeah. You can't watch a video, you can't read a book, you can't listen to music and do this because your attention will be drawn to those other things. You'll be right back to 12 to 15 breaths per minute. But what it does is the following. If I'm practicing paying attention to my breath, and of course you can't see your breath, but you can sense your breath as you breathe it. If I'm paying attention to my breath, I am literally drawing the focus of my mind into the present moment, Hmm. into where I actually am, which makes it very difficult for me to be anxious. It's virtually impossible physiologically to be in the present moment and be anxious at the same time. Anxiety, we must remember, is about two things. It is about, ultimately, it is about my being afraid of being left. It is my fear of being alone. And secondly, it is always about future state. My anxiety is always about my anticipating, whether it's five seconds or five years in the future. To be in the present moment in this breathing exercise brings you into the present moment, takes you out of the future, and reduces your anxiety. One of the things we tell people is, if you've never done this before, you're going to want to do it, and you're going to hope that, like, all i got to do this is for 60 seconds, it'll just stop everything, I'll be fine. This is an exercise that I would invite people to begin to practice and plan on practicing for the rest of your life. How do you do it? Start by trying it for 30 seconds. See what it's like, then do it for a minute, then do it for three minutes. Work your way up to 15 minutes twice a day. Now, of course, I don't don't have time. Like, well, gosh, you can do that or you can be anxious. The choice is yours. Right. Right? So that's one exercise. The second thing is this, movement, physical exercise. You don't even have to go to the gym. Five-minute walks three times a day. Go someplace. Why is that important? Anxiety, part of what anxiety is, is about is my sense of powerlessness. I can't do what I'm supposed to do, whatever that is. Movement of the body tells your brain that you have agency. And I don't mean movement like pacing back and forth. That's not movement with intention because you're not like planning to pace. I'm talking about going for a walk around your block for five minutes, but doing it three times a day. Again, neuroplastic change, the kind of change that we want in the brain to become less anxious, happens more efficiently if we do small things more frequently. So shorter walks more frequently than longer things less frequently. A longer walk once a day. Three five-minute walks is going to be good for you. Third thing, it's really important that we be able to talk to people about what we're feeling, naming my emotion. I'm anxious, and where is it that I experience it in my body? And then drawing my breath and my attention to that place where I feel anxious and simply observing it. Now, this takes some practice and some effort and helps when we've got somebody else to help us do that. Part of the challenge is sometimes people don't feel comfortable telling other people. So what's the step in between? We really believe that journaling work is hugely important for people that we can take what we're experiencing our body when we write about this and not keyboarding it, writing it longhand. It slows the brain process down. It actually directs your attention to something that is in an embodied material way. 
And it allows you to actually begin to put words to what your experiences are. Anxiety is often this amorphous thing that I really can't get my head, let alone my words around, let alone to name it to you. But to write it slows down my brain process, engages both sides of my brain, my right and my left hemisphere, what I'm feeling with what my words are, connects me physically to the process which also allows me to be more fully engaged in the present moment, which, as we said earlier, really reduces our anxiety. Yeah. Overall, those are some practices that in the short run can get people on the move. I just love how Kurt gets right to the point. I mean, in this one particular point where he says we can feel these things, but our feelings are not actually the essence of who I am. And, and how much does that just run against the cultural narrative today that our feelings are the most important part of who we are. He also talked about anxiety is about my being left. It is about my fear of being alone. And it's also about the future state. It's always about anticipating, whether it's five seconds or five years into the future. These breathing exercises will bring you into the present and out of the future. I think that kind of practical help will help many of us this week, right? To just recognize if you're feeling anxious, to know what that is about. And the more I know for me as a logically minded person, the more I understand what's happening in my brain, what's happening in my body, what's creating these feelings, I start to feel a little more empowered to know how to deal with it. And I love this exercise he gave us for breathing. So practice that. Yeah, Kurt has a lot of great insights. That's why the Q team has put together with Kurt a new podcast called NeuroFaith. In it, Kurt explores the themes of interpersonal neurobiology and Christianity. Check it out. It's available now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Gabe, we still have a few moments, so let's quickly take some time to remind everyone about this year's Culture Summit coming up April 20th. 28th and 29th. The seats are filling up here in Nashville, Tennessee, but every one of you can join us this year for the first time. This is going to be available not only virtually so that you could participate, but also we are working with churches to bring this to entire church bodies so that people are watching it in rooms together as well as on demand and being able to create good conversations locally around these really important topics. And so we are hoping I believe we're going to have tens of thousands of people that are going to be participating this year for the first time and creating dynamic conversations that are hard to have for a lot of people on Sunday mornings or at church experiences, but that the kind of conversations you're having every day at work with your friends, with your kids. And as I hope you know by now, we seek to be unafraid about these important conversations. So learn more about the 2022 Culture Summit at qideas.org 2022. Well, thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot. We hope you join us again next time. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.